Saul is finally rejected as king, making way for the true king, David, the shepherd youth, the slayer of giants. This is the 32nd sermon in a series, Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 1 Samuel and chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the first 14 verses, the first 14 verses, 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 14. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. As God replaces Saul with David. By the inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eleb, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord had not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look on. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, two verses 21 and 22. For the same Spirit, the Apostle writes this, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of our God stands forever. 
and by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day through the account of Samuel. Now that the kingdom is taken from Saul, the apostate king of Israel, God immediately sets in motion his plan to restore Israel and the kingdom of God for his glory. Now even though Saul was a terrible king and a rebellious apostate, a tyrant, a murderous man, nevertheless, curiously enough, Samuel mourns for Saul. And the Lord said unto Samuel, while he was mourning for Saul, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? I've rejected him, so why are you still mourning over him? So Samuel had warned Israel. He knew, and he warned Israel that if they chose such a man, this apostate king, the entire nation would suffer tragic consequences under the chastening hand of God. He knew that very well. He told Israel as much. And yet, instead of rejoicing that Saul is rejected, Samuel mourns for the apostate king. And this is entirely natural for the people of God to mourn over such a state of apostasy. It is no great thing, a not a happy affair, when we see apostasy. We should be mourning over apostasy. We should be mourning over the affair of our nation. It is a horrible thing. And Samuel mourns for Saul. Now, Samuel knew the master's will. And he would do what the master wanted. But he also knew that Saul knew the master's will. But the difference between Saul and Samuel is that Saul, even though he knew the master's will, he refused to obey him. And this was a great evil, even a grievous reality. Saul had led the children of Israel to great heights of obedience and victory. And yet he was still an apostate king. Now he could have continued to lead them into great heights of obedience and victory if only he had been a humble man, a man of regeneracy, a man of a regenerate heart, an obedient man. And yet he was not. He was a proud man. He was a wicked man. Now considering Saul's fall and the future misery that would come upon both Saul, his family, and the entire nation of Israel, Samuel shows forth which is commendable for his character, he shows forth a pitiful, he shows forth a pitiful spirit by his weeping. Now, it is not possible that Samuel is mourning after Saul because he thought Saul would finally repent and become the savior of Israel. That's not what he was mourning over. He knew very well that this king was meant to be an apostate. He knew that God had utterly forsaken Saul. And the hard cold fact was that Saul was obviously never to be Israel's savior. He was not to be Israel's king. In fact, Samuel knew this, and he told the people of Israel and the elders of Israel exactly what Saul would become. So he clearly tells Israel, this is the king you wanted, and this is the king who you will get, which will turn to be a tyrant. And yet, curiously, Samuel weeps for Saul. Furthermore, we might also suppose that Samuel knew that God was at work behind the scenes preparing a king that would rule after God's own heart. Because the scriptures tell us that God reveals his will to his servants. And God was very much in touch with Samuel. So Samuel had to know that there was a plan in place to deliver Israel from the apostate tyrant king. In Amos chapter 3 verse 7, the scripture says this, Surely the Lord God will do nothing except he revealeth his secret unto his servants 
the prophets. In other words, God is open and conspicuous with his will to his people. He doesn't do things in secret. He reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. Now, in the New Testament era, God does this. In our day, in our time, God does this through the scriptures. As we read the scriptures, we understand God's mind because the scriptures are the mind of God. The scriptures are the will of God. So when you ask the question, what is the will of God? They are his commandments. So we can know the mind of God. We can know what God is planning through the historical accounts of Israel and Judah and the nations of the world. But during the days of Samuel, there was not so much the revelation of God other than the law of Moses. There was actually a direct revelation from God. It was not a written revelation as much as it was a direct revelation. So actually God was speaking to Samuel. And therefore it is safe to assume that Samuel had a pretty good idea of what God was going to do. He had a pretty good idea that God was going to not leave Israel in the lurch. He was not going to leave Israel into this apostate, tyrannical situation. He was going to, as he had promised, bring a king to reign. So Samuel had a pretty good idea that God was going to raise up a man to rule in righteousness. And still, Samuel mourns for Saul. And God chastises him. He rebukes Samuel for not so much that he's mourning for Saul, but that he is mourning too long. His lamentation was too long. Samuel had seen that this was a very sad affair, and he understood what was going to transpire because of Saul, and he is mourning. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long? Enough already, in other words. How long will thou mourn for Saul? Because I've rejected him. In other words, there's a time where you stop mourning for the apostate. Now, while it may have been customary, even tolerable, to mourn after Saul, God's rebuke is not so much that he wept for the man, but that he wept too much for the man. Instead of getting on to business, getting on to the business at hand, to anoint the king after God's own heart, Samuel is continuing to look back instead of forward, lamenting too long, and God calls him out on it. We cannot lament too long for the depravity that has enveloped our nation. We have to look forward. What is God doing? What is God doing? So Samuel is rebuked by God for looking back instead of looking forward. Note God's commandment. As he points Samuel to go forward, he says, Fill thine horn with oil and go. I love that phrase. Go. Stop sitting around. Stop licking your wounds. Stop crying over it. Go. Fill your horn with oil because I'm going to anoint the king and go. I will send thee to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. God wastes no time in executing his plan We need to waste no time in executing God's plan. That is the lesson for us. We need to be about the ministry of the Lord and stop lamenting over the situation we find ourselves in, whether it's the national situation, our economic situation, our own situation with our own flesh and our own sins. We need to get onto the business of mortifying those sins and moving forward. We cannot be like Samuel mourning too long. How long are you going to mourn over your sin? 
anoint your head with oil and go. Action, rather than lengthy lamentation, is what God calls us to do. Because if you think about it, you can lament over your sin and that's all you will do your whole life because you'll never be perfect. So what is God saying? Mortify and go. Mortify and serve. And sometimes mortification comes to us when we're serving. We're involved in the things of God. We're not home licking our wounds, saying, woe is me, I'm so undone. We understand that. We know that. Now, cowboy up is really what God is saying to Samuel. And go. So, action is what God wants. Rather than lengthy lamentation. Now, lamentation is good. We ought to be sorry for our sins. Lamentation is good. And God was not reproving Samuel for lamentation. He was reproving him for too long of a lamentation. During the time of Saul, Israel suffered greatly and will suffer greatly. And yet God was already at work, even through the the tyrannical approach that Saul brought upon Israel. Even after he was murdering the priests of God, God was already at work. God was already at work preparing a young man for the kingship. While Saul was king, God was working on David. He always had a plan and he was working on him through various trials and testing situations, namely his shepherding. That's our place of preparation, where we are to be prepared. It's our place of preparation. David, as a sheep herder, was being prepared by God, the lowliest position that he could ever imagine. The Philistines even even mocked the shepherds of Israel because they were at a place of lowliness. For within the ministry of his shepherding, David was tested, not with one, but by two very serious trials. A lion and a bear would attack the sheep. Two animals that were ravenous, vicious man-eaters, both of which he defeated single-handedly, saving his sheep as a faithful shepherd, putting himself in harm's way to save the people of God, as he did for the sheep, And it is here where we see not only a historical and a practical lesson, and this is a very historical truth and a very practical lesson. We are to stand in the gap for the people of God. But it's also an eschatological anticipation of what the Lord Jesus would do as the shepherd of his sheep. He would stand in the gap for his people, for his sheep. Now remember, whenever we speak of the eschatological aspect of Scripture, we are speaking of how the Scripture is pointing forward to some aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ, His ministry, His gospel, His victory, and His lordship over the entire earth. So whenever I say eschatological, I'm pointing forward to what Christ is showing us and what Christ has become. So now we ask the question, so how does David's trial in defeating the lion and the bear point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is it a lion and a bear? When you would say, well, because those are very uh, ravenous beasts, man-eaters. And it's showing how David was so strong and so brave. And that is true, historically speaking. But why a lion and a bear? Well, consider the scriptural metaphors which God uses to describe himself when he is angry, his wrath, 
his condemning power by the law and its ability to tear and destroy. Because whenever God is angry, he likens himself to a lion and a bear. He also likens himself to a leopard. All very vicious animals. All who tear and destroy. Even Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah, since he is the eternal righteous judge that is seen by John with fire in his eyes in the revelation of Jesus Christ, judging the wicked and condemning them to hell by his law word. Jeremiah describes God as a ravenous beast when he is vengeful. And this is why we have to go back to the Old Testament to see when God is angry, he is likening himself to a lion and a bear. We see a little bit of this when Jesus makes that cord and whips the money changers in the temple. We see his anger there. John sees his anger when his eyes are a flame of fire. But in order to understand really the the intricacies of his anger, when he is angry at sin, at rebellion, at tyranny, we have to go back to the Old Testament. So Jeremiah describes God as a ravenous beast when he's vengeful in Lamentations 3.10. Notice, he, Jeremiah is speaking of God, he, God, was unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. In Hosea 5.14, For I will be, God is speaking, for I will be unto Ephraim as a lion and as a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will take away and none shall rescue him. So notice this idea of ripping to shreds, tearing apart, a very violent action by God. That is the God of Scripture. Chapter 13 of Hosea adds the concept of a leopard, identifying the swiftness. So you think about the the attributes of these animals. The lion, lurking in the evening, taking his prey in the evening. And that's when he takes his prey in the evening, when it's dark. So whenever the wicked are rising up, they are rising up in the darkness. And that's when the lion comes out. And then the bear, a very ravenous beast. But here now, the leopard, swift in his judgment, swift in his destruction. Notice Hosea thirteen seven. Therefore I will be unto him as a lion, as a leopard by the way will I observe them. Why is he observing them? So that he can see where they're going in order to pounce on them when it is most profitable. Now what is interesting about these symbols is that even the saints are described as lions whenever they bring the law of God, the word of God, to bear upon the nations of the world. So we, as the body of Christ, are also likened to lions. Notice in Micah 5, 8, When the prophet says this, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles, in the midst of many people, as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who if he go through, both tread it down, and tear it in pieces, and none can deliver. Note what Micah is saying. In this verse, the remnant is like a lion among the nations of the world, and among the beasts of the field, among the people. We are to be bold as lions. And then he says, as a young lion in the midst of the sheep, who if he is loosed upon them without restraint, or someone to restrain them like David did, they would be devoured. And of course, when God came upon us, in our rebellious state, as a lion, as a leopard, as a bear, it is Jesus Christ that stood in the gap. It is Jesus Christ that restrained the wrath of God's condemning power, typified by the lion and the bear, that preserved the sheep of Christ's sheepfold. 
And so David, in his historical test, is in anticipation of what Christ would accomplish by his sacrifice. There's another aspect of the line as well, more of a negative aspect. Sometimes even the wicked are likened to lions. In this scenario, God uses the wicked as his chastening tool upon a rebellious people, namely his own church, which has gone astray. Notice what Peter says. He says in 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, and that word literally is the slanderer, as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now the adversary here could either be the law of God as it judges as it judges the disobedient, or even as it judges us, as we read the law of God, we realize that we need to fix this, we need to fix that, we need to fix the other thing. We need to be vigilant, because the law of God is warning us, it's guiding us, it's judging us and reproving us. So it could be the law of God that judges the disobedient, or it could be the enemy of the church which which we are to watch for. And that enemy could be anything. So sometimes God does raise up wicked nations to chastise the righteous. Now what about the practical application? Well, how are the people of God to protect the sheep as they are dispersed among the nations? How do we work as lions? How do we protect the sheep of God like like David was protecting the sheep from the bear and from the lion? What about the practical application? Well, we are to declare the whole counsel of God. And what does that mean? Well, we have to give all the warnings. We have to give all the warnings. As God has warned Israel time and time again, we give the warnings. We make sure we lay out what the curses are for disobedience. And then, of course, what the promises are for obedience. The whole counsel of God. Not just a portion, not just the good news, but all of the news. The true shepherd is contrasted with the hireling and the false shepherd by the Lord Jesus in a series of debilitating warnings, deliberately warning them. Notice what he says, Matthew 7, 15. And here's the warning, beware of false prophets. And what he means by that is the false prophet will not give you the warning. He will not disseminate to you the whole counsel of God. Beware of false prophets. Now, of course, it would be easy if the false prophet would come with a sign around their neck saying, I'm a false prophet, don't listen to me. That's not how it works. Notice how they come, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. They too tear. They also devour. They too are vicious. They are wolf-like. But they look like the sheep. Adam Clark comments, he says, By false prophets we are to understand teachers of erroneous doctrines who come professing a commission from God, but whose aim is not to bring the heavenly treasure to the people, but rather to rob them of their earthly good. Teachers who preach for hire have no motive to enter into the ministry, but to get a living, as it is ominously called by some. However, they may bear the garb and appearance of the innocent useful sheep, the the true pastors, commissioned by the Lord Jesus, or to whatever name, class or party they may belong, are in the sight of the heart searching God, no other than ravening wolves, whose design is to feed themselves with the fat and clothe themselves with the fleece and thus ruin instead of save the flock. Those ravenous beasts are on God's top 1% 
of his anger. He is angry more with the false shepherds than he is with the pagans of the world. John records Jesus' identification of these false shepherds as hirelings in John 10, 11 and following. Notice what Jesus says. And he contrasts himself with the hireling Pharisees. I am the good shepherd. And what he's doing, he's pointing back to David, the good shepherd. He's making a reference to David, who was the shepherd king, who beat down the lion, who took the bear and destroyed the bear. I am. And notice the phrase, I am. The great I am. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. That was what David was ready to do. But he that is an hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scattereth the sheep. The hireling fleeth because he is an hireling and careth not for the sheep. I, on the other hand, am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You can bring this to our own day and time in history when the churches closed their doors because they were afraid. And so Saul is rejected as a hireling while David is tested and groomed as a faithful shepherd ready to give his life for the sheep. Tried and true testing while he was in the lowly position of a shepherd. After God tells Samuel to leave off his mourning for Saul, he then tells him to prepare to anoint the true king. Note the language is past tense. In other words, God is saying, I've already provided for me this king. Among Jesse's sons, by the way, fill thine horn with oil and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided, past tense, I have provided me a king among his sons. Now one might think that Samuel's response would be swift to anoint the new king. You might say, yeah, I'm on, I'm on it. Here I go. The fact is, however, Samuel's concerned. Not about the anointing, but about the wrath of Saul. Notice, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. Notice at this point, Saul was already out of his mind. Ready to kill those who disobeyed him ready to kill anyone that would try to unseat him from the throne. So by this time, it appears that Saul's wrathful behavior was out of control, and Samuel knew it. It was starting to get more and more out of control, and we're going to see how it really gets out of control in the future. Now, even though Samuel had previously hacked Agag to pieces, Saul's wrath is a concern. And so Samuel appeals to the Lord out of concern, as to how he will get away with anointing a new king without Saul actually killing him. Samuel's appeal to God is commendable. Notice he's looking for counsel. How do I do this? Just tell me how to do this. I'm, not, I'm going to do it, but give me counsel. So he looks for counsel. Now, he's not actually afraid of Saul. He simply wants to know how to navigate the situation without getting killed in a very cunning fashion. And so the Lord also, in a very cunning fashion, tells Samuel to deceive the tyrant. To deceive the tyrant. He tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse as his priest in order to make the sacrifice. 
that was pure deception. And what he is telling Samuel is be wise as a serpent. Go as a priest. Don't go as the prophet anointing the new king. Then Saul will come after you. But you go as a priest. Samuel's priestly duties, of course, would not raise any red flags, and Saul wouldn't be the wiser. And the Lord said, take an heifer with thee, play the game of priest. You've got to take the sacrifice. If you're going to parade yourself as the priest, take the heifer with you and say, declare this, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord and call Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show thee what thou shalt do. So the commendable Samuel asks for counsel. How do I do this? How do I navigate tyranny in my day? How do I not become a martyr because obviously there's more work for me to be done. The lesson here seems to indicate that if one was to simply go about their God-given duties as the priesthood of all believers, God would protect them from the wrath of the wicked civil ruler through cunning and targeted deception. Now there are a number of significant issues here that should be addressed. Number one, Samuel is told to fill his horn with oil. Now, oil in the scripture is always used in the anointing of prophets, priests, and kings. And in this way, it will be used on David. Oil is also symbolic of the Spirit of God. And yet David, while he is anointed as king by Samuel, he eventually acts as prophet, priest, and king, typifying the Lord Jesus Christ, because that's what the Lord Jesus Christ is, prophet, priest, and king. So David, as we'll see, is not only going to be anointed as king, He's going to act as a prophet and as a priest. Secondly, Samuel also must take a heifer with him for the sacrifice. That heifer is a representation of the Lord himself. And finally, thirdly, Samuel goes to Jesse who lives in Bethlehem, very significant also, which literally means the house of bread. Another symbol pointing forward to the Lord, not only where he was born in Bethlehem, but what he was He is the bread of life. He is the tabernacle of bread. He is the house of bread. He is our heavenly tabernacle. So we see all of these symbols pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ symbolically in David. And as always, Samuel obeys God. Verse 4, And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and he came to Bethlehem. Once the elders see Samuel coming, they're concerned. They're actually afraid. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming. Why? Why would they do that? Well, for one thing, it was the old man, Samuel, that cut Agag into pieces before all of Israel. So much for the old man who was feeble and unresponsive to any threats. Samuel, at this point in his life, as an old man was still yet to be feared as the prophet of Yahweh, and the elders of Bethlehem knew it. It wasn't his age that made him fearful. It was his fidelity. It was his obedience to the Lord and his fidelity to the king of nations. That was the key. But they also might have been afraid because they had been complicit in calling for a king like the other nations. They were the part of the problem. In fact, they were the problem. They thought that maybe Samuel was coming to hack them into little pieces. And so they wondered, is Samuel coming here to destroy us? To judge us and destroy us? And so, of course, 
they ask, meekly, with fear and trembling in their voice, comest thou peaceably? And Samuel, of course, is coming to them as their priest, and so he tells them, yes, peaceably. So we see here, again, a character trait of Samuel. He's looking at these these elders and these people of, of God as just children, not knowing what they do, needing to be shepherded, needing a king, not a Saul, but a David, having a forgiving spirit, even to these people that are bringing such turmoil and darkness upon the nation. He's still coming to them peaceably. And that is how Jesus comes to us. Even while we have been rebellious, even while we are are being wicked, loving the world, loving darkness, he comes to us peaceably. Comest thou peaceably? And he said peaceably. I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Therefore, sanctify yourselves. That's important. In other words, get right with God. Own your problem. Own your sin. Own your mistake. Sanctify yourself and come with me to the sacrifice because you need to be atoned for. You need the sacrifice as much as anybody. So come with me to the sacrifice and he sanctified Jesse and his sons and he called them to the sacrifice. Now once the entire family of Jesse is sanctified, Samuel begins his examination of Jesse's sons. And it is curious that there's no definitive declaration that the sacrifice was made at this point. In fact, according to verse 11, we might conclude that the sacrifice was made after David was anointed, since Samuel tells Jesse that they would not sit down until that happened. And to sit down would mean, it would imply that they would then sit down to eat the sacrifice. Since the sacrifice was most likely a sacrifice of thanksgiving, especially for the new king, it might very well have been made after David was chosen. Now consider the examination process. And this is how God works. He examines. Like he examined Achan. Like he examined Cain. Like he now is going to examine the sons of Jesse. The first thing that is evident is that while God reveals his secret to his prophet, his prophet Samuel, he is actually holding back from Samuel some of the particulars as to who is actually God's pick. Samuel will have to go through the examination process thinking that maybe it's Jesse's firstborn. And this shows that Samuel's eyes, by God, were hidden, perhaps to show first that God does not always reveal his will to his people immediately, and second, that there has to be a process of elimination before the true anointed is manifested before the nation. Over time, through incremental revelation. And that's how we learn. That's how we learn the Lord's will, through incremental revelation. He doesn't just tell us always, all at once. He does this through time. That is how God works. Let's ask another question. How many judges, prophets, and kings, and priests had to come before the true prophet, judge, priest, and king? before the people of God were finally delivered. And so God puts Jesse's family through a process of elimination. No one would do but David. Only David would do. In the same way that no one but Jesus the Christ, God's anointed, would do. So after Samuel's first mistake, thinking that Eliab is the chosen one, God explains. Notice verse 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, in other words, it's, it's a sort of a kind rebuke, 
Look not on what is apparent. Don't look at what he looks like. That's what the elders did with Saul. Don't look upon his outward countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. And here it is. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. He wanted a man after his own heart. And this statement is extremely critical. The Lord does not look at any outward appearance or open show of religious observances. He looks at your motive. He looks at the fabric of your being. He looks at your heart. He looks at what's really in there ticking. He looks at your heart. Isaiah qualifies this in chapter 66. He says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? In other words, they were building the house, the tabernacle of God. They thought that that was enough to please God, to appease Him. And then He says, And where is the place of my rest? For all those things have my hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But here's what I'm interested in. Here's what I want to see. This is the person that I'm interested in. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. That's the kind of individual that God is pleased with. And that's the kind of individual that we must be. A humble man. A man who knows himself to be just dust. A spiritually poor man who acknowledges his dire need for a savior and a divine king to rule over him. And what is interesting about Isaiah's declaration is what comes on the heels of humble, of, of the humble man's description. In verse 3, Isaiah contrasts the humble man that God is pleased with with the hypocritical man that God is angry with. Now note how all that the proud man does in his attempt to please God through religious observances are condemned by God. They're contemptible. And he looks at them as a blasphemous thing. Notice Isaiah 66, 3. He that killeth an ox. Now that was a righteous thing. But if you don't have the proper motive, it's as if you slew a man. He that sacrifices a lamb, as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation, as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense, as if he blessed an idol. They were doing righteous things outwardly. But inwardly, because their motivation was wrong, it was blasphemous. Yea, they have chosen their own ways, opposite of my ways, and their soul delighteth in their abominations. Since the proud man refuses to humble himself before God, he is cursed by God, and he is brought to delusions that he is right with God through outward shows of religion. Notice verse 4. Also, God says, I also will choose their delusions and will bring their fears upon them because when I called, none did answer. And what did God call? What did He call them to? Humility. Fearing God. Keeping His commandments. That's what God calls us to. Fear God and keeping His commandments. When I called, none did answer. When I spake, they did not hear. But they did evil before mine eyes, right in the open, and chose that in which I delighted not. Now, hearing that the Lord is looking for a certain type of individual, no longer does Samuel speculate as to whom God will call and choose. And so it seems as if Samuel now understands, so he continues to parade each man before the Lord. And here again is the lesson. It is very easy to elevate a man because of his outward show of charismatic behavior or the way he speaks 
his demeanor as it was with Saul. But we are told to test the spirit of man to see exactly what kind of man, or for that matter, woman, he or she is, deep down in their motives, in their heart, in the very fabric of their being. You know, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest poetic preachers of the day, was very concerned because he packed the tabernacle that he preached in with thousands of people. And he was lamenting because he knew that they were there, most of them were there, not because they loved the Word of God and not because they feared the Lord nor did they want to keep His commandments, but because they, they loved the poetry because he was a very poetic, charismatic speaker. And they were there to hear the poetry of Spurgeon. And he lamented because he knew that many were there for the wrong reason. John tells us this in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So, faithful Samuel then parades Abinadab, Shammah, and all seven of Jesse's sons to stand before God, but none were chosen. So seven sons are paraded before God, and none are chosen. Now, curious as to why none of Jesse's sons were chosen, certainly Samuel knew that God was going to choose out of Jesse's sons an individual to be chosen as king. He suspects, rightly so, that there may be another. And so he asks in verse 11, And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? Is this it? And of course, there was another. So Jesse tells Samuel, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he's no big deal. That can't be him. He's with the sheep. He stinks like one of them. And he's not worthy to come before you, is really what he's saying. He keepeth the sheep. As if to say, he's the lowliest of the low. How in the world can he be God's anointed? He's just a lowly shepherd boy. And yet, it is David, the lowly shepherd that God is calling to be king over Israel and a great type of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Already a servant in the affairs of his earthly father's house, he is now going to be brought into the service of his heavenly father's house. Faithful in little, now he will be faithful in much. And that's the principle. Faithful in a little bit. Then you get to be faithful in much. And so, David is called for And he is of a beautiful countenance. Notice verse 12 and 13. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So here again, are a number of things to be considered. Firstly, Samuel conducts the anointing ceremony in the midst of his brethren. This was not a secret anointing. Second, it is at this time that David is actually exposed as God's anointed in the same way as Jesus was openly called as God's anointed when he began his ministry. You see the parallels here. Thirdly, this open ceremony is conducted with the fact that at David's anointing, the Spirit of God comes upon him almost in the same way as the Spirit of God descended upon the Lord Jesus Christ as a dove. Four, 
we also read that the Spirit rested upon David from that day forward, insinuating that it never departed from him as it finally did from Saul. This was an enduring anointing. And finally, this anointing was David's qualification as king. While he was not yet openly coronated as the king of Israel, he nevertheless was chosen to be the rightful legitimate king and would finally be the coronated man as king openly before all of Israel later on. And this too correlates with the Lord who was born king, anointed as king, but did not take his rightful place as king until his resurrection and subsequent coronation at his ascension. Adam Clark once again observes, he says, God qualified David to be governor of his people by infusing such graces as wisdom, prudence, counsel, courage, liberality, and magnanimity. David got it all as the anointed of God. Finally, as the Spirit of God descended upon David, it is taken away from Saul and an evil spirit is given in his place. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. We will explore Saul's curse next time when we continue in the exposition of the first book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of His grace. Amen.